Our Bibles today should fall open naturally to 1 Corinthians 13. So open your Bibles and let's go to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Powerful words as the Apostle Paul pens this letter to the church at Corinth. And coming here to chapter 13, he closes this chapter with these words. Now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. The word love may be one of the most misunderstood words in our English culture today. Valentine's Day to most means candy. It means cupcakes. It means flowers, cards, candles. It means a lot of teddy bears and X's and O's and all those kinds of things. That's what the day more or less stands for in our culture. In the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Greeks had two words for love. They had the word eros, from which we get the word erotic from today in our English language. The word eros in the Greek was a egoistical kind of love, a selfish kind of love. We would think of it in the total context of scripture or teaching today as a lust. It is taking something from someone else. It has self in mind. It is a lustful kind of love. It is exhibited well in the Old Testament in the story of Amnon and Tamar. 2 Samuel chapter 13, Amnon fell in love with his half-sister Tamar. But Amnon, the Bible tells us, thought it hard to do anything to her. He wanted to satisfy his sexual desires with this beautiful young lady, but he thought it hard because she was a virgin. She was pure, and he knew that he wasn't getting anywhere with this girl. In fact, the chapter reveals that she wore a garment of divers colors, for of such garments were the king's daughters who were virgins appareled. So she was not ashamed of her virginity. She was not ashamed of her purity. She was a godly young lady. And so Amnon thought it hard to fulfill his egoistical, his lustful kind of desire for her. But verse 3 tells us Amnon had a friend. Friends are important. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Amnon had a friend. It really was his cousin. His name was Jonadab. And Jonadab contrived a plan whereby Amnon could rape his half-sister Tamar. Sad, sad story. The Bible tells us that after he raped her, he hated her with a hatred that was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her, which proves this wasn't love. Because love never fails, this chapter tells us. Love is enduring. Love doesn't have a quitting point. And so the fact that he hated her after he fulfilled his own sexual desires proves that he never loved her in the first place. So that is an illustration of this New Testament term, eros, an egoistical, a selfish, a wanting something without giving anything back in return kind of love. The other word that the Greeks were familiar with was the word philea, which of course represents a brotherly love or a mutualistic love, a friendly kind of friendship love, the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, the church at Philadelphia in the Revelation. This is a love that we need in society. This is a love that is important on a campus like West Coast, that we treat others as we would want to be treated. It helps if you treat your roommates right, they'll probably treat you right. Uh, it's good that we get along with one another on a campus like this. We have to 
we have to live here. We have to exist here. It's important that you treat your neighbors with respect. It's important that you treat people in society kindly and properly. Why? Because we need to get along, and life is a lot happier if we're in harmony and, and in, in tune one with another. So this fillet, a kind of love is a very important love in, in culture. It's really the glue that kind of holds us together. And a friendship kind of love is so very important. But Jesus introduced a new word. This word would supersede the others by far. It was the word agape. And contrary to an egoistical kind of love or a mutualistic kind of love, this was an altruistic love. This was an unselfish love. This was the love that God demonstrated toward us when he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't need to love us. God didn't need to reach down to sinners. But God, in an agape kind of love, loved the unlovable, loved the ungodly. And this was manifested, the love of God, in that he sent his only son into the world that we through him might live. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, God manifested his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the altruistic love. This is the love that Paul speaks of here, this, this selfless love. It's the love that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 15, where he said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. This is the love by which we as God's people are to be known. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Not simply a brotherly love or a mutualistic kind of love. You love me, I love you. No, this was an agapic kind of love, an unselfish love, a giving kind of love that demonstrates God to this world. So Paul speaks here in this chapter of this love that God desires in our hearts. When we say, I love you, I'm sure that phrase has been spoken on this campus today. When we say that, what does it mean? I love you. We say to God, I love you. Sometimes in our prayers, God, we love you, or God, I love you. What does that mean? Perhaps we would say it to our parents, maybe in a text, or maybe over the phone. We would say, Mom, I love you, or at the close of a text, love you. What does it mean? Certainly we would say that phrase to one that we marry, Probably a good idea to say it every day after you get married. I love you. But if you say it every day, it maybe loses something along the way. What does it mean? What would it mean to say that to a lost person? As we share the gospel with them, and maybe they even put up some resistance. We say, well, listen, I love you. God loves you. What does it mean? In this chapter, Paul, I believe, points out three characteristics of this love of which he speaks. First of all, we see the preeminence of this love. This love that Paul speaks of here that God admonishes us with in 1 Corinthians 13 is a love that is preeminent over eloquence. Look at verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Most of you in the college are preparing in some way for ministry. And you are learning some things about speaking, about communicating in an effective way. 
maybe in an education class where you are practicing teaching and you are communicating that truth to a, a class, maybe in a homiletics class, you're learning how to preach and, and you're putting some of those things in practice as you, as you have those opportunities, whether in class or in a live ministry opportunity. In the graphic arts department, you are learning to put things on a screen or put things in a website or uh, prepare a tract or perhaps a, some kind of an invitational flyer or a missionary a presentation of video and, 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 and you're communicating something. But God says, if you master all of that, but you don't have love, all that is nothing. It's worthless. Because love is preeminent to eloquence. Love is preeminent to education. In verse number two, he says, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, you're attending classes even today where, where you have learned some things. You, you go to an apologetics class and you go, Whoa, this is awesome. Man, this is, this is the truth, and this is how to defend that truth. And wow, and you go to a Bible class, and you, you learn something about the life of Christ that you never knew before, and you're adding some knowledge to your, your biblical understanding, and you, you go to an education class, a history class, or you go to a, a math class, and you're taking in all this knowledge, and, and boy, you get it down, and you pass the test, and you graduate with honors. But if you don't have love... It's worthless because love is preeminent over education. Love is preeminent over expectancy. In verse 2, he says, Though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. When we get fired up around here through the preaching, through some of the conferences, and we're encouraged to expand our faith, to believe that God can use us, that God can change the world. We want to conquer a city, conquer a mission field, and we believe that we can do it with God's help. But God says you can have faith that removes mountains. But if there's no love, you're nothing. It's preeminent over endeavor. In verse 3, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. We could be benevolent. We could help out the homeless. We could help those in need. We could give of ourselves, our time, our, our energy, our resources to help others. But God says if you're just doing that without charity, without love, without this agape love, it's nothing. It's preeminent over our example. Verse 3, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. We could die at the stake for our beliefs, willing to be martyred. But God says if there's no love, it's nothing. So there's a preeminence. There's a superiority to this love of which he speaks. There's a time in the New Testament where the disciples were trying to decide which was the greatest of the commandments. And I can sort of imagine this conversation maybe like a conversation that might take place at West Coast where someone might say, uh, you know, there's a lot of rules in this handbook. Uh, and most of them seem kind of dumb. I mean, most of them seem kind of frivolous. And probably really, I mean, I mean, you're not going to get kicked out if you do this. I mean, you might get a demerit or you might get five, but I mean, it's not a big deal. But I wonder which one that they would, they would absolutely not tolerate, right? In other words, there might be some discussion about what if, if you did this, I bet they'd kick you out. If they did this, Pastor Chap would just say, gone, <laughs> you know, get him out of here. Uh, you know, there must be like one that's the worst, and maybe that's what the disciples were talking about. They were probably talking about those Ten Commandments, the ones that Moses had given. And, and, and they were maybe discussing and, and perhaps, uh, you know, James said, well, I think it's the first one. You know, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, if you do that one, that's, that's, the, that's the one on top. I mean, you got to do that one or you're in trouble. 
Maybe Peter says, I don't know about that. I think maybe, I think maybe uh, the one about, you know, honoring your parents. I think that, I mean, that speaks to authority and honoring authority. I think that's probably the greatest one. And maybe Matthew says, no, I don't know about that. I think life is, I mean, there's a sanctity to life. And if you took another person's life, I mean, that would be just the worst. So they're having this conversation. And so they decide to ask Jesus. And they're, they're thinking, okay, which one's he going to pick? They went to Jesus and said, which is the first and greatest commandment? They're all listening. Maybe it's the one I chose. You know, they, they've all got their bets down. But Jesus threw him a curveball. He said, the first and greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, love is superior. It's preeminent. But what does this love look like? Secondly, let's speak about the personality of love. I mean, when you love, how would we know that? I mean, we can see if someone dies at the stake. We can see if somebody speaks well. They're eloquent. We can see someone that walks across the stage and has uh, honor cords or maybe is, is valedictorian, maybe a 4.0. We see education. We, we, we see these things on the outside, but how do we see love? What does that look like? What's the personality of love? How would we recognize that? How would someone recognize it in us? How would someone know that we truly love? How would God know if we truly love? Well, get ready. It's quite a list. It makes up this personality of love. First, he tells us that love is considerate. In verse number four, charity suffereth long and is kind. Does that demonstrate your actions? Are you a kind person? Are you a considerate person? Love is considerate. Love is content. In verse 4 he says, charity envieth not. Charity's not wanting something that God hasn't given us. Real love doesn't covet another person's gifts or opportunities. Love is content with what God has entrusted. Notice thirdly, love is contrite. He goes on in verse 4 to say that Charity vaunteth not itself. Love isn't braggadocious. It's not puffed up. It's not about me. It's not about what I want, what I think. Love is contrite. Letter D, love is consistent. Love is consistent. Verse 5, doth not behave itself unseemly. Love is never out of character. Love doesn't fluctuate with our mood when we get up in the morning. Love isn't, love isn't suspect to good times or bad times. Love does not behave itself unseemingly. It's not, it's not vulnerable to the ups and downs of life. It stays the same. It's consistent. Love is conformable. It seeketh not her own, verse 5. Love isn't interested in its own agenda. Love is not interested in what I want. It's not my will, but thine be done. What is your will, God? I delight to do thy will, O God. Love is not bringing our prayer list to God, but bringing a blank sheet of paper to God and saying, God, you fill it out. Love is conformable. Next, love is calm. Verse 5 is not easily provoked. Love is calm. Love does not make a matter worse. It does not escalate a situation, a disagreement. Love doesn't spread gossip about 
something that is taking place and escalate that to a frenzy. Love is calm. Love is not easily provoked. Next, love is clean. Think of no evil. Love starts in the mind. Love is pure. Love is thinking on things that are true and honest, and just, of good report, virtuous, things praiseworthy. Love is clean. Letter H, love is careful. In verse number six, rejoiceth not in iniquity. Love isn't thrilled when somebody else falls. Love isn't thrilled when somebody else gets in trouble. Love is not, love is careful about that, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Love isn't going around saying, oh, look what they're doing, or look what he did, or, you know, look at all the bad in that. No, it's careful, because we're all sinners, saved by the grace of God. Next, love is cheerful, rejoiceth in the truth. Love, love is happy about truth. Love is happy about God. Love is happy about the gospel. Love is happy about the local church. Love is happy about the Bible. <laughs> love is cheerful about that which is right. Next, love is compassionate. Verse 7, beareth all things. It's compassionate. I hope as we focus on different parts of the country this semester, that that does something in you. That somebody would have compassion on 34% of the people in Los Angeles who deny the existence of God. That, that something would burn in us about people in Arizona where the second highest or fastest growing religion is Hinduism? That, that would do something? Because love is compassionate. Somehow, there would be love toward fine arts. Love is convinced, verse 7, believeth all things. Do you believe that God can do something great? Do you believe that God can do the impossible? Do you believe that souls can be saved? Do you believe that churches can be planted? Do you believe that God is still on the throne? Do you believe the gospel still works? Love is, is convinced. Letter L, love is confident. Love is confident. It hopeth all things. It not only believes all things, but it, it hopes to be a part of that. It hopes to have a, a, a ministry. It hopes to, to be a part of what God is doing. And then love is, is, is lastly committed. In verse 7, he says in the last phrase, endureth all things. Love doesn't, as I said a moment ago, have this stopping point. Love doesn't get frustrated when, when, it doesn't, when it's not received. Love goes on. It, it, it continues on. And when you think about all of these characteristics that make up this personality of love that, that Paul is teaching here, it describes God's love, doesn't it? God is every one of those things. And only a person under God's control can demonstrate that kind of love. That kind of love that we just went through, that's not part of our human DNA. To be kind, to be considerate, to bear another person's burdens, to, to, to be happy about truth and, and not, to, not to get interested in gossip and, and all those things. It's not possible humanly. But as humans, we're commanded to love. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his, his bowels of compassion from him. Beloved, let us not love in 
word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now listen to this carefully. If you don't get anything else, get this. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Those of you that are not listening right now, you don't hate me. But some of you are showing indifference. By not listening. You don't hate Los Angeles. We can be indifferent. We don't hate the bus kids. But we can be indifferent. We don't hate the LGBTQ community. But we can be indifferent. The opposite of love is not hate. When you hate someone, you're at least acknowledging they're a person. When you're indifferent, you're ignoring them as if they do not exist. You've devalued them as a person. You've taken them out of the category of humanity. They don't exist to you. You don't hate the Jews, but some of you are indifferent about it. You don't really care. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And I want you to see, finally, the, per the perpetuity of love. In verse 8, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. When, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And so now abideth faith, hope, charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Love is perpetual. Love knows no end. Love has no boundary. Love has no barrier. Love has no limit. We dare not become indifferent toward God. We dare not become indifferent toward the brethren. We not, must not be indifferent toward our enemies. We're commanded to love them. We're commanded to love the unlovable. And it is this agape love that can reach the abused and the apathetic and the atheistic. It is this kind of love that reaches the reprobate and the rebel and the religious. It is this kind of love that breaks through to the ignorant, the indifferent, and the immoral. It is this kind of love that reaches the haughty, the homeless, and the hateful. It is only this kind of love that can reach the bruised and the broken and the blind. Agape love will change the world and none other. If your love for God is at the candy heart stage, we're not changing this world. I'm not, I'm not saying it's wrong to give candy today. I bought some for my wife. Stood in line for 20 minutes last night. Got a lecture from the lady at the counter. She said, are you buying flowers too? I said, it's none of your business. Just let me pay for the candy. <laughs> she said, well, well, what's your wife's favorite flower? I said, she likes all flowers. You don't know her favorite flower. I mean, I'm getting this lecture in Walgreens. <laughs> but it, if, if all we have is a, a nice card kind of love or a nice candy kind of love or a donut kind of love, we're not going to reach this world. We've got to have an agape kind of love. Amen. We cannot afford to be indifferent. Indifference will not change anything or anyone.
kind of love do you have? Toward God, toward one another, toward the unlovable. 